From New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics related to your money, markets, and issues near and far from personal finance. On this episode, we're going to do something a little different, actually reversing roles where I'm not the one asking the questions. To do that on this episode, I've asked Senior Associate at Bernstein, Amanda Beebe, to join me. Amanda, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Mark. Many of you know I've been on the road around the country speaking on this topic of behavioral finance, which is basically the study as to why humans are terrible at evaluating risk and reward. This is obviously a topic critical in the investment world, but it also plays out in everyday life. So Amanda, you've had to sit and listen to me yak about this topic time and time and time again. So what do you think has been the most interesting part of our study of behavioral finance? Well, Mark, I think before we get into that, it might be helpful to just explain what this is all about. So I think that's a good point. The notion of behavioral finance all started back, oh, now probably close to 30 years ago with Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And what's interesting is they won the Nobel Prize in economics for their work, but they weren't trained as economists. They, they were really psychologists and sociologists trying to understand the human mind. And what they put out there was this notion that I think has become pretty common today, the notion of left brain, right brain. And, and they would define it as thinking fast and, and thinking slow. And what they were able to determine is that regardless of someone's age, gender, education level, nationality, the humans as a species are terrible at evaluating probability and then risk and reward. And where that's most acute is in the investment world. So so what they said is there's two sides of the brain. There's reason and instinct. The reason side is the one that where you think about yourself, you think about the future and planning. It's much more involved type of thinking. The instinct side is very natural, right? It's this notion of fight or flight. It's the ability to react quickly to things. Um, The way I sometimes test it in people is that when I say to you, um, what's one plus one? Naturally know the answer, right? Two. Right. And so it just takes nothing for you to come up with that answer. But if I were to say to you, what's 14 times 12? I'm going to say, can you hand me that calculator? Right. So that's exactly the point, right? The, the brain doesn't want to do that type of calculation. Now, for those that are listening who tried to do that math of 14 times 12, there's actually a study where they've done this. What you find is that when the brain clicks over from the instinct quick side to the reason side, it's actually energy efficient, inefficient, excuse me. So what that means is that your body always wants to do the, the, the most lazy thing it can, the easiest way to get from point A to point B. So one plus one is two, really easy, right? When you get to 14 times 12, you, your instinct side can't do that. You don't instinctually know that. So the reason side takes over. And, and when that happens, you may actually even feel like your brain turn on. It's, it's like this weird phenomenon that's hard to explain. But when they test that, you can actually see the brain waves fire, people's pulses will increase, um, their eyes will dilate. It's all of these things that take on much more work. The best example I can give is, and for us that are on the road a lot, we know this, right? When you drive a car, you don't have to really do any thinking, right? You just get in the car, you turn on the ignition, and you drive. And, and people often say, hey, that long drive was really relaxing. But there are times where a drive is really taxing when you're in New York City or Los Angeles traffic, right? Where you have to like, consciously think about every part of your drive. And people will say, oh, that was a long drive. I'm tired. They didn't run a mile, but the truth is their brain had to work harder because the reason side was working. And, and physiologically, that's actually much more effort for the human mind. It's almost the notion of like when, when a student or your children take the SATs, they're really tired afterwards. I mean, they just sat at their desk. Why would they be tired? It's because the, the part of the body, the brain that's doing all those calculations actually gets exhausted where the things you do instinctually, whether it's driving or working to, walking to work or riding the subway, you, you can do on autopilot. 
So the body wants to defer to that notion of autopilot. The problem is that gets us into trouble when we're making financial decisions. So Mark, in your speeches, you walk through an example of having the audience choose between two doors. Like they're on that old show, let's make a deal. Can you walk them through how that works? Yeah, so it, it's a little bit tougher, right, when, you, when you're not seeing this notion of the let's make a deal money hall doors in person. But, but I'll try and walk you through the, the simple math and try and make it you know, pretty lively, right? So if I gave you two choices, Amanda, I said, you've got a 100% chance of $3,000. In other words, I'm just going to give you $3,000 for showing up on this podcast today. Or I said to you, I'll give you an 80% chance of getting $4,000. What would you prefer? Door two. Really? So that's interesting because most people choose the guarantee, right? Most people pick the guarantee that they want to know for sure they're going to get the $3,000. Actually, what Common and Tversky found is that by about 8 out of 10 people, they would prefer knowing that they're going to get $3,000 than risking the chance of getting $4,000, right? So they want the certainty of that gain. And for you listening at home, my guess is that most people are going to pick that. I definitely want that guaranteed three thousand dollars. Why would I even risk to get four thousand? I came in here with nothing. I leave with three thousand. I'm a winner. Why take the chance of getting four thousand? The way we would talk about that in finance is there's actually a way to calculate which of those doors is better or options is better. And the way is called an expected return, which is simply taking the four thousand dollars and timesing it by an eighty percent probability, and you get an expected return of thirty-two hundred dollars, which is better than a guarantee of three thousand. So that is to say, every time you get that choice, you should pick the guarantee of $3,200, uh, not the guarantee, the, 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 the expected return of 3200 even though it's only an 8 out of 10 probability. Most people don't do that. Now, what gets more interesting is if you play that around and you flip it and you play this game again and say, Amanda, for showing up on this podcast, you have to give me $3,000. That's your entry fee. Or... I give you an 80% chance of losing $4,000 to me. Now what do you pick? Hmm, I'm going to go with door one. Okay, so you'd rather lose the $3,000. Mm. Just, just for the record, you are the unique person in all of this. This is almost never how this goes. What you be. find is that most people, by, by a magnitude of about 9 out of 10, actually more than 9 out of 10 people, would say, wait, I walked in here and I've got to give you 3000 bucks, Mark, that sounds terrible. I would much rather take a chance that I give you 4,000, but there's at least a shot I give you nothing. So, so what that tells you is, even though the expected value, by the way, is worse, it's the 3,200 negative, right? So long story short, getting out of away from all those numbers, what they were able to show is that people really like certainty. They want a certainty of gain, and they really don't like losing, right? So, so what you find is that the, the pleasure of, of victory or the pleasure of gain is not nearly as impactful on humans as the pain of loss. And, and, and the easy way to see this is, I think for those of you who are sports fans out there, you will see coaches and athletes talk all the time at the end of their career about, you know, it was the losses that burned me that I, I couldn't get out of my mind. And like, this is some sort of interesting thing about being a coach and being great. It, it's just actually being human, right? People get losses etched in their mind much more than they do the pleasure of their gains. Oh, absolutely. On the golf course, I feel like at the end of every round, regardless of how well I play, I'm always just replaying the shots that I missed or the putts that I didn't make. Right. So, so some analysts or, or, or some economists took this one step forward. So Richard Thaler and Cass Sustein developed a simple question and answer experiment designed to try and prove this. So, so this is what they asked. It's actually quite simple. Heads you in X, tails you lose 100. How big would X have to be before you take that bet? 
So for those who are horse players here, right, if it's one-to-one -one odds, heads you in 100, tails you lose 100, not all that exciting, right? Heads you in 200, tails you lose 100, maybe. Heads you in 1,000, tails you lose 100, everyone loves that one. So, so where is that threshold of, of the pain versus the gain? And, and what numerous different people in this field, from Thaler to Kahneman to Versky, were able to figure out is that it's about two and a half times you need to get two and a half times more in the gain, in the victory, than you do for the loss to feel equally as good. Now, th this experiment actually gets much worse because what they then said is, all right, well, how evolved are we? And so what they did is they, they took this same type of experiment, but, but with twists, we were able to do it with capuchin monkeys. And sadly, the, the pain versus pleasure example came up at 2.7. So the Nobel Prize winning economist put it somewhere between 2.3 and 2.7, and monkeys put it at 2.7. So that means we're not nearly as evolved as we hope about registering in pleasure and pain. That's disappointing. Uh, to say the least. Mark, in your speeches, you give an example of how and why people like to play the lottery. It's more really about this idea of loss. So what's the phenomenon behind that? Well, people like to play the lottery because they like to try and win money, <laughs> right? Um, but the, the question is, I think, why are people more likely, why are there more office pools when the lottery is at $500 million than when it's at $50 million? Because the fact of the matter is, for most of the people out there, whether they win $100 million or a $1 billion, it's, it's a significant amount of money. It's life-changing, right? Your, your day is going to be different the next day. So why at a billion are you, are you tempted when you're not at $100 million? And there's a whole bunch of math around this, but I'm going to give you this same, like, pick your option here. So if I said to people, you have a 1% chance of getting $6,000, or you have a 2% chance of getting $3,000, Amanda, maybe you'll be in the, in the popular category this time, which of those would you prefer? Hmm, I'll go with door one. Okay, so, so finally you wind up with a majority. <laughs> You've got a 1% chance of winning $6,000. You like that over a 2% chance of $3,000. Now, to the extent I explained expected values better before, in either of those, the value is 60 bucks, right? A 1% of 6,000 is 60, 2% of 3,000 is 60. So the expected return is the same. Given that the expected return is the same, the, the skew between people in door one and door two should be 50-50 because no door is actually any better than the other. What you find is that 70% of people pick like you did door number one. Well, why if the expected value is the same? And what Kahneman and Tversky were basically able to get at is this notion that if you're going to lose... And this is just like the lottery. You might as well lose big. So what goes through most people's minds is, I've got a 1% chance of winning 6,000, I'm not winning. I've got a 2% chance of winning 3,000, I'm not winning. If I'm going to lose, I might as well lose going down big on the 6,000. This is exactly why there are more office pools when the lottery is a billion dollars and not $50 million. We all assume we're going to lose the lottery, but I'll throw $10 down on the chance to win a billion bucks. 10 bucks for a million, I'm not as interested. It's stupid. But it's, it's how we evaluate that probability. And so it creates a skewness in, in how we act. One of the interesting ways to see this is in Vegas, right? Um, for those of you who play poker, there are times where you have a really good hand. Uh, I'll come up with an example. Four queens. Four queens is a phenomenal hand. You might bet everything you have that on four queens you're going to win the hand. The fact of the matter is, you're betting 100% of your wealth in my silly example that you're going to win. But you could lose to four kings. You could lose to four aces. Odds? Nearly impossible. But you're betting 100% of what you've got on an outcome that's not 100% certain. 
that overbetting will get you in trouble, right? By the way, when the odds are in your favor, card counters are great at this, they take advantage of that spread. But what happens is when there's a disconnect between the probability and how you act in the investment world, it creates a dislocation that can lead to bad results. There was this really fascinating experiment that evolved how a roulette wheel impacts how people then answered a trivia question. Can you walk us through that one? Um, I'm happy to. Kahneman and Tversky set up, this is actually my favorite experiment. I I think it's really genius because it, it, it honestly makes almost no sense. I would call this like think of a number, right? Because what they're proving is that just thinking up, just thinking up a number can throw off how you perceive an outcome, how you perceive risk and return. And, and that number doesn't have to be connected in any way to what's going on. I find that quite terrifying. So, so here's the experiment they conducted. I know this is going to seem absurd, but these are the data points. So what they essentially did is, Common and Tversky split people into two rooms. And in each room there was a roulette wheel. Again, I'm oversimplifying it. The roulette wheel was rigged in each room. In one room, the roulette wheel would spin and land on the number 10. In the other room, it would spin on the number 60. So you've got a bunch of people in a room with a 10 on the roulette wheel and a bunch of people in another room with a 60 on the roulette wheel. Great. After the wheel is spun, Common and Tversky asked the participants in the room what percentage of UN countries they thought were from Africa. Now, that is a question that is very hard, okay? I'm not even sure where people would start to generate that answer in their mind. So clearly the instinctual side of the mind has shut down. You're going to have to go to reason. The problem is most people in that room have, have no rational way to come up with that answer even when they engage the reason part of their mind. But aha, the number 10 was just seen on the roulette wheel in room 1. And so what happens is, and I'm sort of answering the, I'm giving you the whole story here. The estimate of the percentage of company, uh, countries in the UN from Africa in room number one where the roulette wheel was 10 is 25. Okay, so they, they say 25% of the countries. In roulette, in roulette room two, where the spin is 60, the estimate is 45. There is nothing to account for the difference between why one room would say 25 and why one would say 45. So when they did all their research, what they got to is this notion that the brain took a, a, a horribly frankly stupid shortcut where it said well the number 10 is in my mind that seems like a really low number for countries in africa heck i gotta go higher than that say 25 the 10 is irrelevant but that's where the mind went in the other room where the spin was 60 people's minds went and again i'm I'm shortening the, the research 60 that feels really high i don't know call it 45 so this irrelevant number on a roulette wheel but by the way it's not hidden they people have just seen it get spun is impacting people's answers. And so the brain using a shortcut, using data that is completely irrelevant to the question, is what they would call a, a eurism. But basically, it's just a mental shortcut the brain takes to get to an answer, even though it's entirely the wrong answer. And even though it's based on a completely useless, I want to call it fact, but it's not even a fact, just data point. I think that is terrifyingly scary. But at least recognizing that that happens, I think, can impact how you would respond to that question or one would respond to that question or another investment question going forward. So how does this impact how we work with our clients? Um, Well, all of it does, right? It it impacts why we think certain stocks are cheap in the market. It impacts why we think certain stocks are expensive in the market. It impacts how and why we trade and how we think about asset allocations. But the one I think is like very broad, 
that is interesting to me is it, I think it impacts how we need to communicate to our clients. And this gets at other work that Kahneman, Tversky, and Thaler did oh, about 20 years ago, which is this notion of data frequency. And, and I can make it really simple. We send out statements to our clients monthly, right? You can see your values on our website daily. This is not unique in the investment universe, right? The more you look at an account, the more often you will see negative occurrences, right? If you look at a stock every second of the day, throughout the day, there are going to be a lot of times it ticks into the red negative. It doesn't mean anything. It's just at certain points of the day, it trades down. There are going to be certain months in a portfolio where you're going to be down. There are going to be certain years that you're going to be down. The longer you stretch that time horizon, the less likely you are to see down years, right? Because over time, markets go up. So how often you look means really how often you're going to see bad occurrences. So, so they've actually categorized this and, 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 and quantified it. So if you look at your statement annually from your investment advisor, you're going to see a frequency of negative report just using standard data points 14% of the time. So roughly one out of eight years, you're going to see a negative year, right? If you look at it monthly, it's roughly 40% of the time. So almost every other month, you're going to see a down month. It's not going to change your results in the end. It's just how often you're going to see something that's going to make you unhappy. So here's what they found. The people who look at their statements annually have a higher allocation to stock than people who look at their accounts monthly. And we know that over time, stocks make more money than bonds and clients want us to make as much money for them as possible. But the more they look at their accounts, the less likely they are to take risk. And so if you look at that data objectively as an investment manager, like I and we are, what it's telling you is if you really want to work in the best interest of your clients and you recognize that they have this, this academically proved loss aversion on risk, the real thing we should do as a true fiduciary is say, thank you for your money. We're never going to tell you how we're doing, right? We'll give me a report once a year at best, maybe, maybe once every other year. To the extent you would let us get away with that, the data is telling you our clients would have, and investors generally, would have much better investment results. But we are in a world where people want data on their phone, let alone at home, and they don't want it at the end of the day. They want it in real time. And I understand why that is, right? We're living in that type of technological world. The problem is we know it leads to worse investment performance for people. So I don't know how we square that circle, right? It's really hard because... People want availability of information and they have a right to and we want to give that to them. And frankly, we want to be in business. But we also know to the extent we give them too much, they're going to make the wrong decision. And so that really is, I think, a, a conundrum for the investment industry as a whole. I don't think anyone has the perfect answer to this other than to say, we'll give you the data you want, but it's going to be our job as advisors to try and put that in the right context and know data like this and share this with our clients so that when they're going through a tough month, which by the way is 40% of the time, we can reflect on the fact that that's not a true trend. Is there any, uh, any data to prove how all this impacts investors? Yeah, and it's pretty sad, truthfully. Um, there's a study done by Dalbar, it's a third party, that looks at investor return over time. And so the most recent one I have is from 1992 to 2016. So that's a, that's a really long period of time. And what it looks at is the return of investors the average U.S. investor in a municipal bond fund or the average U.S. investor in a, in a stock fund, what their return has been. So it understands how money's going in and out of markets, right, and going into different investment management firms. And it compares that to just the S&P 500. Now, here's what's interesting, right? There's, there's this rage about passive management today, which is to say, for a very low fee, you should just buy the market. 
I can't really beat up on that thesis because over the 92 to 2016 time frame, the U.S. stock market, the S&P 500, turned 9.2%. That's a great number. The problem is the typical investor from the study, and typical doesn't mean you know someone who's average at this. It's, it's called the collection of all the data. So people who are the smartest in this business to the worst, on average, they take that 9.2 and they turn it into 4.6. And so they lose half the return of the market. And it's not because of any sort of ill will. It's because of all of the things we've talked about today, that they extrapolate down markets like 2008 and get overly worried at the wrong time. It's that they find an investment manager who's on it, who's a very good manager but having a tough year or two, and they fire them and, and hire someone who's had a great year or two, but that thesis is about to end. And so money is always trying to chase what's hot. And, and, and the result of that is taking a 9.2% return on the market and turning it into 4.6, right? By the way, you see this in equity flows. Money came flying out of the market at the end of 2008, early parts of 2009, when the S&P had gone from, excuse me, the Dow had gone from 14,000 to a fraction of that, where what you should have been doing is buying. But that's not what was going on. In the municipal bond market, over that same period in the Dow Bar study, bonds returned 3.8. The average municipal bond fund investor returned 0.1%. They made nothing. So I think what we've got to do for clients, and we have data that supports this, is to say we've got to get them in the right investment strategy that is, is thoughtful about the level of risk each individual client is willing to take. And then we have to educate them on these topics because there will be tough times in markets, right? That's unavoidable. And we have to teach people about their own behavioral biases. We have to know ours as investors and keep people from making the big mistakes that ultimately hurt them. Because when you can get 9.2 in the stock market and 3.8 in the bond market, and then our stock selection can do even better than that, there's a lot of money to be made. But when you're making all of these mistakes that are just part of the human condition, right? It's not one person smarter or stupid. It's just part of the human condition. And you're exposed to that and you don't know better. And over that period of time where you could have been making 7%, you wind up making 2 there's a lot of money lost there. And it's our job to make sure people don't. And we've got a really good track record of doing that. So I think that's a probably a really good place to wrap up. Amanda, I'd like to thank you for helping me out on this episode. And, and to our listeners, if there's any questions on this or any other topics, I can always be reached at my email address. That's mark with a C dot Penziner at Bernstein.com or directly in the office at 212-969-6655. Until next time, so long.